We will continue our study of God's Word today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and as you locate that passage, ponder with me the most important question that there is in the earthly realm, and that is, what does it mean to be a true Christian? What does it mean to be a true believer? And there's a companion question with it that's also important. What is the evidence that someone is truly saved? And the evidence that they're growing in the Lord. Well, our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 today helps to answer those questions. Specifically, will be in verse 8 and 9 today. Now, as we have learned in our previous messages, Paul and his co-workers had ministered in the city of Thessalonica, but eventually they had to leave that city due to persecution and the opposition that they faced. Paul eventually ended up in the city of Corinth, and from that city he wrote two letters back to the believers in Thessalonica, what we know as 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He had learned that the ones who had come to Christ in that city, Thessalonica, were doing well. They were bearing much spiritual fruit. So he wanted to share his joy with them over the the good news that this newly planted young church was actually already a spiritually healthy church. And he wanted to thank God for that as well. Well, last week we were in verses 5 through 7, and we found the first reason that this church was recognized as being spiritually healthy. They manifested, number one, joyfulness in suffering. That's an indication, that's a confirmation of spiritual maturity and growth, joyfulness in suffering. They had learned that by observing Paul and the other missionaries and how they faced suffering. They also uh, knew the testimony of Christ and how he dealt with persecution and opposition, and they sought to imitate, our text tells us there, to imitate them in how to thrive even amid much tribulation, verse 6 says. The Holy Spirit gave them strength to not only endure, but to even have joy in the midst of their suffering. So much so that verse 7 adds that other churches throughout the regions could look to the Thessalonians as an example to follow. Now today, in verses 8 and 9, we find Paul giving us a couple more confirmations that these Thessalonians were committed to applying the truth of Scripture to their lives and therefore confirmations of their spiritual health. And thus, we find more of what we should exemplify as well. So number one was joyfulness in suffering. Now today, number two, faithfulness in proclamation. Faithfulness in proclamation. This church was known for being an evangelistic, mission-minded church. Now here is how this letter describes it in verse 8. For the Lord, the word of the Lord, has sounded forth from you. Now that little conjunction for here serves to let us know that Paul is continuing what he's been discussing, but now the emphasis is on how, he says, the word of the Lord had gone out from them. 
That phrase, the word of the Lord, is a way of referring to the divine saving truth that we know as the gospel. The gospel message that's centered on the biblical testimony of who Jesus is, the testimony of Jesus as Lord and Savior, and the message, the good news, that forgiveness of sin is found only in Him. The gospel, or as it says here, the word of the Lord. We do find that phrase, the word of the Lord, used elsewhere uh, in place of the term gospel. For example, in the book of Acts, we find it several times. Here are a couple of examples. Acts 8, verse 25, it says, They solemnly testified and spoke the word of the Lord, preaching the gospel to many villages. Acts 13, verse 49, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. We also find Paul using it again in the letters to Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, he writes to the Thessalonians and says, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Well, in our text today, Paul says that this gospel message, the word of the Lord, had sounded forth from the Thessalonians. That's an interesting expression. In Scripture, it's found only here in the New Testament. It means to uh, blast forth. It means to uh, sound forth with great intensity. You find it used outside the Bible. And in extra-biblical writings, it's even used to refer to the blast of a trumpet. Sometimes it's used to refer to the loud uh, clap of thunder. So you can see why Paul is using this term. He wanted to make the point that these believers had been bold and clear in their faithful proclamation of the truth, the truth about the person, the work of Jesus Christ. As members of the church traveled around the region and through the region, they were intentional in putting forth effort to bring the gospel to all the surrounding regions. But notice something that he says here in that verse. Notice that there's a prepositional phrase. It sounded forth from you. Just a small note about that. That tells us what the starting point was of their mission-mindedness and their proclamation. The starting point was their own city. So he says, from you, it went out to all the other parts of the region. In other words, in their own city, people had began to hear the gospel, the word of the Lord. They had begun to hear about these people and their commitment to Christ. And then, from that starting point, they sought to take the gospel everywhere they went. And by the way, that emphasis on home first actually follows the model that Jesus gave us, he outlined it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Familiar words to us, Acts 1, verse 8. He told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, that was where they were, the city, and then in all Judea and Samaria, a broader spectrum of location, and then he says, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We do that as a church. We take that outline from the Lord seriously. And so we support mission work and evangelism here, first of all, through what you do in the normal course of life. And we love hearing testimonies 
from people in our own congregation about how they share the gospel with a family member or a neighbor or someone they work with. And, and then they, they ask prayer for that, that the Lord would use that in their proclamation of the gospel. We support the local uh, Winston-Salem Rescue Mission that does gospel ministry here in our city. We support and are sometimes involved in a local uh, crisis pregnancy center. And then beyond our own city, we have the, the state. We support capital ministries that, that presents the gospel and teaches Bible studies in our state capital. In addition to that, we are actually involved nationally in some, way, some ways. We are part of a, in supporting a church plant up in New York City in Manhattan. And uh, we're going to be part of a future work plant, uh, church plant in Utah through one of our seminary graduates. And then... It, through one of our other seminary graduates, we're involved in, in ministry in South Carolina. In the bulletin, you have mentioned that we are to be praying for the Truth Network, a uh, local radio station where there's Bible teaching, not only locally, but across the state and in other states. And then, yes, we support mission work around the world, training centers around the world, and men like Paul Snyder that you heard from this morning who are serving in the remotest part of the earth. Well, back to verse 8, notice how that verse confirms the breadth of the gospel impact that these believers had. Verse 8 goes on and says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Now, that's a bit of hyperbole there when Paul says every place, or your translation may say everywhere. Clearly, he doesn't mean that they literally... We're going throughout the known world. But nevertheless, in the part of the world where they could have gospel impact, they did. This new, young body of believers sought to be as intentional in gospel proclamation as possible. Now, one practical reality that aided their evangelistic efforts was their location. I mentioned this to you when we introduced the, the study of First Thessalonians. That Thessalonica, that city, was a, a busy city. It was a hub of, of travel and trade. And one reason was the fact that the famous Ignatian Way, the major east-west corridor of the Roman Empire, the I-40 of their day, ran right through their city. Plus, the city was located near a gulf, which meant access by the sea to the whole Mediterranean world. So all of that made travel, not only possible, but common for the Thessalonians. But even though that was a practical reason, the main factor was simply their intentionality in being faithful to communicate their faith and the gospel message to others. One more thing about the major corridor that the city was located on, it made good communication both ways. In other words, not only did the Thessalonians take advantage of their location to travel, to spread the gospel then, people, other people from elsewhere also used the same avenues of travel to come to Thessalonica. And as Christians did that, many of them gave reports to Paul about the Thessalonian believers and their faithfulness in their proclamation. Now, this was likely even part of the report to Paul by Timothy. When Timothy eventually joined Paul in Corinth, here's what we find later on in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith. 
But even before Timothy had returned uh, to Paul from Thessalonica with his report, it's likely that news had already come to Paul from people traveling through Thessalonica, travelers spreading the news about this spiritually healthy church, including their faithfulness in proclamation of the gospel. And Paul was so impressed with their faithfulness in this regard that he added a statement similar to what he already said, but with one additional thought. Verse 8 goes on to say, your faith in God has gone forth. He's already said the gospel, the word of the Lord sounded forth, but now he says the gospel has gone forth. But he adds something here. The news of their own faith in the message also was being spread. These Thessalonians had heard the gospel. They had received it and believed it, and then they began to spread it. And so faithful were they in that gospel proclamation that the apostle concludes the verse with this, so that we have no need to say anything. Now, you might read that and think he's just talking about there's no more words of commendation and and gratitude he could speak about the Thessalonians, but actually he means this. He's just saying that he felt like he and the other missionaries didn't even need to preach the gospel in those places where the Thessalonians had already gone and been evangelistic. Well, I think the comments by F.F. Bruce aptly summarize the mindset of these Thessalonians. Listen to what Bruce writes. Having received the gospel, the Thessalonian Christians had no thought of keeping it to themselves. By word and life, they made it known to others. And that kind of mission-mindedness is evidence, confirmation of a spiritually healthy church. So joyfulness in suffering, faithfulness in proclamation. Here's a third confirmation. Genuineness of repentance. Genuineness of repentance. Now before commenting on the repentance that these Thessalonians were known for, Paul does make a quick comment in verse 9 about the time that he and the other missionaries had spent in Thessalonica. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. Paul was not only, in other words, being updated on the Thessalonians, but also he was being told from time to time how his own ministry and the ministry of Silas and Timothy, how that ministry in the city of Thessalonica was perceived by people. Well, the bottom line is God had blessed that ministry. God had called many to himself, and so their ministry was viewed favorably, which is what Paul is saying here. But still, even more important to him than that was the fact that the people he he was talking to were giving him reports about the transformation in the lives of those Thessalonians. Look at what he says in verse 9. They were telling me, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, those are very important words in the New Testament. So important that John Stott describes this verse as presenting, quote, the fullest account of Christian conversion in the New Testament. Now, Paul, when he talks about conversion, most of the time, He refers to it as faith. We just saw that in verse 8. He was getting reports about the faith of the Thessalonians. He'll refer to uh, 
getting saved as believing the gospel. But here, in our verse 9, he calls coming to Christ a turning. He says, you turned from, to God from idols. Now, that term, turned, is used to indicate the fact that in, the, in a sinner's conversion, when someone is converted truly, genuinely, there is a change in direction. There is a turning in the opposite direction. <clears throat> that is what repentance is. The term itself in the Greek, metanoia, means a change of mind, a change of thinking. So there is a change of thinking that is now different. It's the opposite of what it was, a change in thinking about sin, about self, about Christ, about salvation. But repentance is not just a change in thinking. It's a change in thinking that leads to a change in living, a change in behavior. Now, we find that idea, therefore, used elsewhere in Scripture as well, about coming to Christ, about getting saved. Here's a few from Acts, Acts 9, verse 35. It says, they turned to the Lord. They got saved. Acts 11, verse 21, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 26, verse 18, this is where Jesus was telling the newly converted Paul, Paul was recounting the story of this, of when he was saved, that Jesus was telling him what his ministry would be, that he would preach the gospel to the Gentiles, Acts 28, verse 18, so this would happen, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and may receive the forgiveness of sin. You heard a brief report from Paul Snyder that in the village where the Korowai people live, a village where there's been cannibalism and multiple uh, common machete attacks on other people and, and beating of wives and holding children up and beating them upside down with sticks, there's been a change, a turn, as the gospel has had its effect, from darkness to light. But look at that statement again. There's two sides to the conversion. There's a positive side and a negative side. It's on the positive side, it's a turning to God, but on the negative side, it's a turning from idols. Let's talk about the negative side first. He says, you turn from idols. Now, this mention of idols confirms that most of these Thessalonian believers were Gentiles. Idol worship did not dominate the Jews, at least after the Babylonian exile occurred. And we find out in Acts that there were a handful of Jews that did come to Christ, but most were Gentiles. And these Gentiles had been worshiping literal idols, images, carving, statues, whatever. Now, idols are representing false gods. They represent, you could say, gods that don't even really exist. And nevertheless, idols possess a powerful hold on people's hearts and minds. That's why we find in the Old Testament, Israel, repeatedly warned by God, stay away from idols. Be careful about the nations around you that serve false gods. For example, Exodus 23, verse 33, if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. 
1 Samuel 7, verses 3 and 4. Remove the foreign gods and from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord. There's that turning. The classic verse, of course, is God's view of false deities and how he spells it out in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So the Old Testament condemns idolatry and worshiping false gods, but so does the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, there's a list there of those people who will not go to heaven, who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and one in the list is idolaters, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, there's a warning there, flee from idolatry. Galatians 5, the list of the deeds of the flesh, one in that list is idolatry. 1 John 5, verse 21, the Apostle John writes, little children, guard yourselves from idols. We've been studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. We've just spent uh, the last three Wednesday nights looking at Revelation chapter 21 and the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that will descend from uh, heaven to the new earth, believers dwelling forever in that new city. But in Revelation 21, it says the ones who are there are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But there is a list of those who are excluded, the outcast. And in that list, it says idolaters. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The point is clear. True conversion, true salvation is not just a blip on the screen in somebody's life. It's not just a decision somebody makes when they sign a card. It is a turn from some form of idolatry. But people in bondage to idols don't take very kindly to their idols being criticized, their idols being attacked. You see a literal example of that in Acts chapter 19. Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and that was making a dent in the idol-making industry. And the local tradesmen who made idols, they weren't happy about that. Here's Acts 19 verse 26. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, customers, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So the local tradesmen were threatened, so what they did was they started a mass riot in the, in the city, gathering this incredible crowd to oppose the apostle. Verse 28 of Acts 19, they were filled with rage and began to all cry out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's one of their Greek gods, Artemis. Why are people so upset about their idols being attacked? Because idols are symbols of their identity. People see in them even a source of protection, a source of prosperity. No wonder idolatry is condemned as such a sin in Scripture. It challenges God's sovereignty. Now, in Thessalonica, it would have been an especially sensitive issue, just so you'll know where the city was. It was only 50 miles away from Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was the supposed home of all the Greek gods. You could see it from Thessalonica. So it would not be natural for people there in that city to turn from idol worship 
Only a genuine work of God by His Spirit in the heart, the work of regeneration, being born again, could cause someone to repent of that. And that's exactly what God did. You can hear all that and go, that's thrilling. Thank you for that lesson in church history. That's great for those Thessalonians. But what does this have to do with us today? Especially in the United States. What about... Winston-Salem and surely Louisville. There's no idolatry going on in Pofftown and Kernersville. Are there gods that must be renounced today? And the short answer is yes. Even though many of us, many Americans, will probably never even encounter a shrine to any of the Greek gods, Nevertheless, our culture is deeply involved in false worship, therefore deeply involved in idolatry. Here's what one author says about all that. Listen carefully. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its shrines, whether it's office towers or spas or gyms or studios or stadiums where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression by eating and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic pr- proportions, listen carefully, We perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Here's the bottom line. An idol is anything that we treasure more than God. Whatever ends up controlling and driving our thoughts and actions becomes an idol. I was reading more on this topic this week. Here are some examples of idols in our culture. And these are idols that a person must turn from. When they come to true faith in Christ, a true believer, a true salvation, they're they're turning. For example, number one, the idol of self. That's a big one. God created us to glorify Him, not self but we have this massive, in our culture, love affair with self. When all the time, our motto ought to be the same motto that John the Baptist had. I must decrease. He must increase. Idol of self. Second, another one, the idol of, of approval and acceptance. I mean, we're created to be relational and we... We want to belong. There's nothing wrong with that, to have community. That's normal. The problem arises when we place our desire to be liked and accepted and approved of above our relationship with God. The idol of relationships then. When we seek fulfillment from others, and it could be our children. Some people seek fulfillment from their children and family and spouses or friends. Especially if we elevate those relationships above God, we end up First of all, holding an empty bag at the end because they're not fulfilling. (laughs) But it's idolatry. It's the idol of relationships. Another one, the idol of security. 
people are very concerned about security. The problem is they, they look for their security in some very shaky temporal things. I mean, think about it. Some people take security in their careers, but careers can end. Jobs can end suddenly. Relationships fail. Stock, stock markets can crash. Unexpected medical bills can come along. and Everything that we think we're putting our security in, whatever fortune we've amassed is gone. It's the idol of security. We've made an idol out of it. That's related to another one, the idol of success. Again, nothing wrong with desiring to be successful and working toward that, but when we think success is what provides us our identity or our significance or our security, then we've turned it into an idol, the idol of wealth, very common when form in our culture today, the worship of money and the worship of possessions and all that money can buy. Commercials are made with that idol in mind. The idol of health and beauty. Nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy. Nothing wrong with wanting to get over a sickness. Nothing wrong with fitness. Nothing wrong with seeking to improve our appearances. But when the focus of our lives is given over to this fear, controlling fear of sickness and disease or our focus is giving, given over to fitness and the glorifying of our appearance and our physique, we end up then worshiping an idol in the place of God. The idol of food. Food's an idol for many people. On one hand, it's a blessing from the Lord. Scripture tells us it's something good. And I mean, in fact, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And all those gifts, including food and possessions and everything, is designed to provoke gratitude in our hearts to the Lord. But unfortunately, people get controlled by a desire for the comfort that food brings. It becomes more important to them than intimacy with God. The idol of intellect. God gave us our minds. We can, he gave us our intelligence. We, we can be curious. But whenever we seek knowledge more than the one who gives it to us, then we have slipped into idolatry. The idol of comfort. Nothing wrong with enjoying comfort. I could throw pleasure into this one. Nothing wrong with pleasure in and of itself. But when it consumes us, when it controls us, it's an idol. There are so many more. It's the idol of freedom. The idol of politics, the idol of opinion, the idol of government, the idol of sex, the idol of experience. No wonder John Calvin famously said this, the heart, the human heart is a factory of idols. So yes, idolatry is a problem no matter what culture we're a part of. And we make idols even out of good things. And so for this reason, the rejection of some form of idolatry is involved in Christian conversion. Conversion is a a reorientation of a person's heart. I'm not saying that there's not more to learn and that everything is perfect about it, but it is a reorientation of a person's heart. It is coming to Christ. It is a change in loyalty. And that change happens as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating a spiritually dead person. So the Thessalonians are an example of this to us. 
Paul heard reports, and so he knew they, they didn't take some sort of half step toward God. You know? They didn't just add God you know, to, the, to all their religious loyalties they already had. They took this radical step, it says, of turning from any false deities. But there's a positive side, right? It says in verse 9, you turned to God. And it even says it differently at the end, to serve a living and true God. And as you might expect, that verb serve is from the doulos group, word group, that means slave or slavery. We are slaves to self in slavery to sin, slavery to all those idols. We come to Christ and now it's a new form of slavery to God. So this word group speaks of devotion to him, utter devotion to him, recognizing his rightful rule over our lives. And notice that God is intentionally described here as living and true. Paul emphasizes that for a a reason. In this context especially, God is living in contrast to the lifeless idols. God is true in contrast to all the counterfeit gods. And that truth about God is emphasized throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. The Lord, Yahweh, is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Daniel 6, 26. He is the living God and enduring forever. When we studied the Gospel of John in John 17 and Christ's high priestly prayer to the Father, one line in that prayer, John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Acts 14, 15, we preach the Gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. The writer of Hebrews even tells us that when we come to Christ, that the blood of Christ cleanses us of our sin, even cleanses our consciences, Hebrews 9.14 says, cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Slavery to God. Paul actually expresses that slavery to God a little bit differently in Romans chapter 6 verse 18. He says, having been freed from sin and turned, in other words, You became slaves of righteousness. God represents righteousness. So conversion or turning is far more than merely just changing your belief about who Jesus is. It's certainly far more than asking Jesus in your heart, which is a phrase not even found in Scripture. It's a turning. It's a reversal of allegiance from idols to serve a living and true God. We could ask people that way. If we wanted, we could say, when did you come to Christ? Or when did you get saved? Or when did you turn? That'd be valid. This all brings up something controversial, unfortunately, in Christian circles. It brings up the topic of the lordship of Christ. Now, there are people who articulate the idea that you come to Christ in submission to him as the Lord of your life. That means getting saved. There are some who articulate it. And, and sort of cloud the issue, they make it sound like it's a, a work that you have to do. Or sometimes they even make it sound like there's a certain intensity and degree of submission to Christ as Lord or it's not good enough. I get why some would react to that, but the bottom line is the Bible does equate salvation to that as well. 
being saved is submission to Christ as Lord. It's not the only way the Bible articulates salvation, but it's one of the ways. And there's a reason for that. The fact is, that's who Jesus is. He is Lord. And he's the one who even presented conversion or turning or salvation this way. Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, in other words, be saved, turn, he must deny himself. There's the negative side. And take up his cross daily and follow me. There's the positive. I'll give you the landmark words on this topic, though, the Lordship of Christ. Romans 10, verse 9. I didn't write it. I'll just read it. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, meaning his sacrifice was effective, you will be saved. To quote John Calvin again, no one, therefore, is properly converted to God except the man who has learned to place himself wholly under subjection to him. Once again, salvation is not a little simple filling out a card, joining a church. It's a reorientation. It's a turning. I could also put all this in terms of worship because that's related. Becoming a Christian means a change of worship. And I say change because everybody worships something or something. The only question is who or what are we worshiping? In converting us, God turns us from rebelling against him and to being worshipers of him. So again, salvation means a decisive break with false worship in some form and redirecting of your life to serve God. It entails repentance a turning from sin, and in faith submitting to the Savior alone. Acts summarizes it this way, Acts 20, verse 21. They were solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two sides of a coin, repentance and faith. Don't separate them. That's the biblical view of salvation. No wonder Paul was so grateful to God for these Thessalonians. He heard about, he knew of the genuineness of their repentance. And that repentance was confirmation of their love for the truth, their commitment to apply the truth. It was confirmation of their spiritual health. As is faithfulness in their proclamation of the gospel and their joyfulness in suffering. So let's summarize what we've heard today and Let's just put it in terms of some expectations of us, two of them. Number one, we find here the expected pattern. The expected pattern when it comes to evangelism. We've been reminded in this passage that evangelism and mission-mindedness, first of all, is normal in a healthy church. It's normal. And it's normal because of the pattern that God has ordained for how the gospel is to spread. This is the expected pattern. This is God's way. There's three steps to it. The gospel is proclaimed. Elect individuals hear it and believe it. And then they in turn proclaim it to others. And that cycle just repeats itself. Pretty simple. 
Pretty simple plan. That's the cycle God has determined for how the gospel is spread. Again, to quote John Stott, this is God's simplest plan for world evangelism. And every church is to play a part in it. It's not necessary that we organize it, highly organize it. I mean, it's not that we need organized programs to make evangelism happen. There's nothing wrong with that. But far beyond the need for organization, that's not the ultimate key. The key is intentionality on the part of the people. Intentionality. It's the mindset that we each as individuals are to live with. We're to live with this mindset as we go about our lives, starting in our own homes. As husbands and wives live out their biblical roles. It's a gospel testimony, Scripture tells us. When a husband loves his wife the way Christ loves the church, he's giving a testimony of the gospel to his children in the world. When a wife follows the leadership of her husband, it's not because he's better, because it's her role, because it's part of the gospel testimony. It's a picture to the world and her children of what it means for the church to follow Christ. There's a lot at stake there, but that's where it begins. And then as we interact with neighbors... But then as we go about our lives, interacting with store clerks, when you're buying something and dealing with something and maybe something doesn't work out right or they overcharge you or something or they forgot to put something in the bag and you have to call them back, hypothetical stuff, what's your attitude about it? Do you see that as an opportunity? I'm a, I, boy, I've got to remember I'm a gospel witness here. Or you just want your money. You want it made right. Listen, have the mindset as you interact with store clerks. When the handyman comes to your house to do some work, or think gospel opportunities. See how this might work around to something about the Lord. And as the Thessalonians, as you travel. In other words, everywhere and at all times seeking to be faithful to the Great Commission. Let me just remind you something about that verse, the Great Commission. You're familiar with the words, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're so familiar with the words, we can spit it out and not even think about what they're saying. But let me just tell you something about that verse. The central controlling command of the verse, the one that's the imperative, the verb that's in the active voice, it's not go and it's not baptizing. It's make disciples. There's the key. As we fulfill that imperative, we make disciples by proclaiming the gospel so that people can receive that and follow Christ. That's how someone becomes a Christian. That's how we make disciples. The verb go is in a different form in the Greek. It's a participle, and it's an important term, but you could even translate it going, or as you go, it's understood that that's going to happen. You are going. You will be going about here and there as a normal course of life. So as you go, remember this. Baptizing is not the primary thought. It's not the active voice. It's a participle. It indicates that it's expected that will happen too after someone has made a disciple. You become a disciple. You become a a true believer. You turn. You become a Christian. You get saved. Well, of course, then baptism follows that. But make disciples is the essential concept. It is a way to summarize what this mindset of individuals and churches ought to be if we're spiritually healthy. I mean, just think about it. As a church, we, 
we don't want to just think about ourselves. We don't want to have the mindset that we are just an island here of safety, but rather we're a hub that radiates gospel influence. And connected to this, we should continually be reminded that it was not just any message that the Thessalonians were proclaiming as they went about their lives. It wasn't a social message. It wasn't a political message. It wasn't a self-improvement message. It wasn't a conservative social message. It was the word of the Lord that they proclaimed, the gospel, because that was what they had received. And they were confident in the divine character of God's truth. And if we're confident in that, trusting that it is the truth that God uses, then we will be motivated to be faithful to proclaiming it and not some other message. And we'll do it with boldness. We'll do it without apology as we bring gospel light into the darkness of our world. Of course, this is what we want to be known for as a church. We don't want to be just known for all that we do right here or our sophistication or anything like that. It's our love of the truth and our faithfulness in proclaiming it. As your leaders and elders, that's what we want to be known for, not just our oratory skills but or good storytelling, but bold and faithful heralding of the divine truth revealed in Scripture. So do what I do. I have to do it. I have to pray for this about myself, this gospel mindset. I have to pray frequently that, that today, Lord, you'll help me remember this as I'm at Walmart. Lord, Walmart needs the Lord desperately. You ever been there? I won't get into that, but that's a, that's a mission field there. People you work with, I pray about that. Lord, help me just remember that today when I'm at the bank or whatever. That it's, more, it's, it's about more than what I'm going there for. There's a guy coming to my house to do some work. He's going to give an estimate. Help me to remember it's, it's, more, it's about more than just this work. And I pray, Lord, give me, give me boldness and give me courage and give me the words to say and clarity and help me take advantage of little windows of opportunity. And Lord, work the conversation around to that because I'm not very good at it. You pray that. That's the expected pattern for evangelism. One more expectation, the expected vigilance. Listen, I said that evangelism and mission-mindedness is normal for a healthy church, but there's something that's not normal. It's abnormal, and that's idolatry. So we must be on guard against what our hearts are so easily prone to do, and that's being factories of idols, as Calvin said. And that vigilance and alertness starts with remembering what our conversion was, that by the Holy Spirit's power, we turned from false worship, in particular turning from the the God of self to serve the Lord. Remember that, but the vigilance is maintained by remembering that our witness in the world is strengthened as we continue to say no to worldliness and to idols. As people know who we are and and how we prioritize the use of our time and how we use our money and how we offer our talents and energies for kingdom purposes. It's part of our reputation so that we're not forming idols about money and everything else that's out there. 
Let's seek to be known for pursuing a decidedly biblical lifestyle as slaves of the Lord and not succumbing to the many gods and idols of our generation. I encourage you to pray about that for yourself as well. Lord, pray Psalm 139. Search me. Help me to see if there's any form of idol there, even good things I've made into idols. Help me to grip the things of this world more loosely and trust you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this little glimpse into a healthy church. We need the constant reminders of what the standard is, what the, what the mark is, what the bar is that we, we're trying to reach. And Lord, I thank you for the manifold blessing, your blessing upon this church and the people here. But Lord, we want to excel even more in these ways. We pray that you would help us to be vigilant against idolatry, but to also be intentional in the way we live our lives, even in settings of business or anything else, that it's more important. Kingdom purposes is more important. Help us to have that mindset. Lord, I do pray for anyone here who's never turned. Maybe they're trusting in some decision or some religious act or something, but there's no real evidence in their lives of an ongoing pattern of seeking to follow Christ. Loving His Word, loving His people, loving ministry, I pray that you would open their hearts to truly believe in the Lord and to put their trust in Him and only Him and then to follow Him as their Lord. In Christ's name, amen.